Abraham, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you, Father. We thank you for your Shabbat, for this time that you've given us to gather together as Mishpachah, to worship in your presence. Lord, I thank you that as we open up your word, that we have the ability to hear from you, to receive from you. Lord, I pray that your audible voice will speak forth today as we uh, dig into the Parsha. Father, that your message will come forth, not my own, that your heart will be heard and will be felt, will be received, that nothing of me will be involved except that which you have already ordained for this purpose. In the name of the our Messiah, we pray. And everyone says, Amen, Amen. So this week we're in Parsha Pukat, uh, which comes from Numbers chapter 19, verse 1 through 22, 1. Pukat is a, a really interesting Parsha, in particular looking at the word that we uh, get the name of the Parsha from uh, the word Chuchat, the singular is Chok. Uh, so you've got Chuchat, which is plural, and Chok, which is singular. Chok is a, uh, a Hebrew word that in essence means a divine decree that is either extra or irrational on the human level. In other words, we may not understand why we're supposed to do it, we just know we do, and this is what God's called us. And so the name comes from the first important word in the, the first couple of lines, which is chukat, and the chukat in particular, the chok in particular being dealt with here in Parsha chukat, is the chok of the para adumah, or the red heifer. And that's the very beginning of this week's Parsha, uh, Numbers 19. You ever read that, that part, Numbers 19, the, the, the red heifer, the para adumah, and realize it just makes no sense at all? Like, there's no, absolutely no logic to it at all. You've got, first off, every single person involved in the making of the cleansing waters becomes unclean so that somebody could become clean. It's crazy across the board. Uh, aside from that, how in the world burning the, 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 the entirety of a cow and mixing that in with some water is going to do anything for making anybody clean. Uh, it, it seems like you actually get a little more dirty than clean. Uh, but uh, it, it's a really interesting uh, aspect of the Torah. And it's one of those things, it's kind of like as a parent, when we tell our children to do something, they say, why? And we go, because I said so. A hook is God's because I said so. Uh, we don't have to ask why, we just know we're supposed to do it, so we do it. And, uh, and the red heifer, the parama, is one of those things. In particular, though, we can understand uh, what the parama is showing us, right? We may not understand why, but we can understand what it's directing us to. And every aspect of the parama, or the red heifer, every aspect of the sacrifice and the cleansing waters points us directly to Yeshua. Uh, if you remember, Yeshua took on the sins of the world so he was clean, became unclean, that you and I could be made clean by his blood poured out upon us. If you remember when uh, he was stabbed in the side, what came out? Blood and water, just like with the Pargama, when the blood is drained and the ashes are scooped up and it's put into the water, it took blood and water for the person to be made clean. Uh, even down to the, the particulars, such as in first century Jerusalem, with the temple standing where the Pargama would have been sacrificed, would be up on the Mount of Olives overlooking the temple in the same vicinity as where Yeshua was hung on the cross and sacrificed his life for us, that we could be made clean and have access to the presence of God again. So when we look at the Pradama, we may not understand the why, the particulars of why we do this and, and, and why it's supposed to make anyone clean, but we can understand the, the, the thing is taking us to, is pointing us to, directing us to, which is specifically Messiah. But uh, the thing I actually really want to focus on the most today is chapter 20 of Numbers, uh, dealing with the water uh, from the rock, the Mayim the living waters from the rock. So if you have your scripture, go ahead and open up to Numbers chapter 20, beginning with verse 1. 
It says, in the first month, the entire community of B'nai Israel arrived at the wilderness of Zen. The people stayed at Kadesh. There Miriam died and was buried. Now there was no water for the community, so they assembled against Moses and Aaron. The people quarreled with Moses, saying, if only we had died when our brothers died before Adonai. Now, why have you brought the community of Adonai into the wilderness for us and our livestock to die here? Why have you brought us from Egypt to bring us to this evil place, a place without grain, fig, grapevine, or pomegranate, and there's no water to drink? So first and foremost, before we move on, let's unpack a couple of things here, all right? Um, so it's really interesting as we read this. Uh, we recognize uh, that uh, this was roughly the 38th year of Israel's journey. Remember I told you Numbers covers about 38 years, give or take, of Israel's journey. Uh, and, and Deuteronomy is only a few short weeks before Israel crosses into the Promised Land. So this is roughly the 38th year, the very beginning of the 38th year of Israel's journey in the wilderness when Miriam dies. Uh, and as we look at this, we recognize Miriam dies, nation of Israel begins to grumble and complain that we have no water. Uh, and it's, it's, it's curious as we look through here, we see a couple of things. First and foremost... Uh, in verse 3, the people quarreled with Moses saying, if only we had died when our brothers died before Adonai. So they're going back to all of the times leading up to this, that people of Israel died. And why did they die? Because of their own actions, right? So you've got the, the uh, golden calf and those that died there because they were worshiping an idol. You've got those that died because of the plague, because they refused to go into the promised land. You've got the, uh, the, the ten spies uh, who brought on uh, uh, death for the, the nation of Israel. You've got Korah and his assembly that brought on death for people in Israel. Ultimately, this was the first generation dying away. So we see who it is that's complaining. This is what's left of the first generation that's complaining uh, about this. And we go to verse 4. Now, why have you brought the community of Adonai into this wilderness for us and our livestock to die here? Now, let's go back. This is the second time in the Torah that we read about Israel complaining about water and God divinely providing water for them uh, from a rock. So we go back to Exodus 17, verse 1. All the congregation of B'nai Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin in stages according to the command of Adonai and camped at Rephidim. Uh, but there was no water for the people to drink. So the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why are you quarreling with me? Why do you test Adonai? But the people thirsted for water there. And they complained against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to kill us with thirst, along with our children and cattle? Now we go back to Numbers again. Numbers chapter 20, verse 4. Uh, says, uh, Now why have you brought the community of Adonai into the wilderness for us and our livestock to die? Notice in the first time around in Exodus 17, they said, Why did you bring us out of here to die, both us, our children, and our livestock? In Numbers chapter 20, they say, Why did you bring us out to die, us? And our livestock. Why do they say us and our livestock? Because this is the first generation. What's remaining of the first generation grumbling as they're watching? One by one, the dominoes fall around them. As all of those that refuse to go in the promised land, refuse to accept the blessings and the promises of the Lord, refuse to walk in the blessing of the Lord, refuse to trust faithfully in the Lord's work in their midst, start to die off one by one by one, and they recognize their children are going to go into the promised land. Their children are going to make that journey. The second generation will. So they don't mix their children into this drama. But they do argue and complain against the Lord. And it's interesting that they say for us and our livestock, whereas the last time they said for us, our children and our cattle. Why have you brought us, verse 5, why have you brought us from Egypt to bring us to this evil place, a place without grain, fig, grapevine, and pomegranates, and there's no water to drink? 
Notice each of those items without grain, fig, grapevine, and pomegranates. Notice those are all things the Lord promised would be in the promised land. Right? Those are all things the Lord said would be waiting for them in the promised land. As a matter of fact, some of those are things that the spies brought back from the promised land and said, look, everything is exactly as God said, but we can't do this. And so here they're complaining, why did you bring us out here to die? Us and our livestock. Why did you bring us out here where there aren't the plethora of the promises of the Lord to die here in the wilderness? Why are we without water? Uh, and so it continues on verse 6. So Moses and Aaron went from before the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces as is what they do every time Israel messes up. They fall in intercession before the Lord on behalf of Israel. Then the glory of Adonai appeared to them. Adonai spoke to Moses saying, take the staff and gather the assembly, you and your brother Aaron. Speak to the rock before their eyes and it will give out this water. You will bring out water from the rock and you will give the community something to drink along with their livestock. So Moses took the staff from before the presence of Adonai, just as he had commanded him. Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly in front of the rock. He said, listen now, you rebels. Must we bring you water from this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with the staff. Water gushed out and the community of, uh, and its livestock drank. But Adonai said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust in me, so as to esteem me as holy in the eyes of Israel, therefore you will not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These were the waters of Mirabah, where Israel contended with Moses and where Adonai showed himself holy among them. So here at the end he says, because you did not trust me and esteem me as holy before the eyes of Israel. But then at the end of verse 13 it says, and where Adonai showed himself holy among them. Right? So he wanted Moses to reveal his holiness to them. But instead, he did it anyways on his own because Moses didn't. So it's curious here that uh, Israel's complaining about a lack of water. Uh, Moses and Aaron go before the Lord and they're like, you know, dude, seriously, these people again. This is ridiculous. I'm paraphrasing here. It's not actually in the, the passage. I'll let you know how it plays out in my head. Um, and the Lord says, all right, take your staff. Gather the community of Israel together and speak to the rock. Right? Well, Moses has seen everything else the Lord has done up to this point. Moses has no doubt that he could just speak to the rock and water is going to come out. It's not going to be some big deal for God, and it won't be such a shocker for him. We go back to Exodus 17 and the narration there, and what we realize in Exodus 17, the first time this came around was that the Lord said, Take your staff in front of the nation of Israel and strike the rock, and I will give them water to drink. And so he's placing Moses' role and position as the voice of the Lord before Israel. He's still showing his holiness to Israel, but he's showing it through Moses and through the action of Moses. But here in Numbers 20, he tells Moses, listen, this time around, just speak to the rock. You ever wonder why he says just speak to the rock? Who is it that's complaining? It's the first generation complaining, right? Who is it that's watching? The second generation. Right? The second generation has only ever known the provision, miraculous divine provision of the Lord. Whereas the first generation recognized Egypt provided for them. Granted, it was the Lord providing through Egypt, but Egypt provided for them. And they have this, uh, this messed up relationship in their memory to how exactly Egypt provided for them. We see over and over again, why did you bring us out here with this nothing to eat back in Egypt? At least we had food plenty and we had this and we had that. And Moses is like, are you serious? Like you were in chains back there. You were given scraps and you were forced to make your own materials to build these things for them. You literally were one breath away from death when you were in Egypt every waking moment that you were alive. And you're telling me you think it was better back then? Uh, and so here we have the first generation grumbling, the second generation watching. 
38th year means that we're two years before the next generation goes into the promised land. And if we look at the book of Joshua, the first few chapters, the miracles that occurred there are very similar to the miracles that occurred for Israel coming out of Egypt. Why? Because that first, second generation didn't necessarily get to witness all of those miracles. And they didn't, or if they did, they were small and they wouldn't have remembered them. But here they get the opportunity to experience themselves, such as the Jordan River parting for them to walk through on dry ground, just like their fathers did, walking through the young soap, the Sea of Reeds. So here the Lord wants to show his holiness, show his uh, power, show who he is and how he provides for his people to the second generation. He wants to use the first generation as an example to the second generation. And so he tells Moses, speak to the rock. Because the second generation only knows God's divine, miraculous provision. They don't know any man's part and role in that provision. Unlike the said the first generation who lived in Egypt. So the Lord says, speak to the rock. Moses comes out. I mean, he's riled up this time. There's no talking him down. And he comes out and he's got his staff in his hand. And Aaron's next to him. He goes, what are we to bring water from this rock for you? And he strikes the crap. And I imagine he hits it about as hard as you could ever imagine hitting something. Just sheer aggression coming out uh, uh, of Moses as he strikes this rock. And interestingly enough, God still provides water. Moses doesn't do what he was told. But God still provides water. You ever thought about that? You ever thought about that in your own life? How often we walk outside of the will of God, yet God's provision is still there? We may not necessarily see that it's God's provision, but it's still there. And when we realign with the will of God, what happens? We start to recognize how blessed we were even when we were outside of the will of God, right? Tithing is a great example. When we tithe, we see the blessing and the return that God gives. And when we step outside of that promise for blessing, we start to experience the curses that go along with ignoring that, that, that commandment. We start to, to, to fill the, the strings get tight, the purse strings get tight, and the, the bills get closer together. And, and it seems like the, the piles are growing and there's less and less money to cover it. But somehow we've still got a roof over our head. We've still got food on the table. We've still got uh, gas in the car. We're still getting around. Things are still working. We don't aren't able to really picture that because all we're stuck in is the curse side of it, right? We're, we're focused on the curse and not on God still being there and covering our hide even though we're not walking with him the way he wants us to. And then when we start tithing and we get back on track with what we're supposed to do with the will of God and we start feeding that tithe into it and we start to see those blessings return and then we start to think back, oh wait, I didn't lose my house though during that. That doesn't mean God was blessing us while we were outside of his will, but it does mean that God still provides just as he always provided for Israel when they were constantly turning their backs on him over and over and over again in the wilderness, just as he continued to do for Israel in the promised land, uh, just as he continued to do for Israel in Babylon, just as he continued to do for Israel under Roman captivity, just as he continues to do for Israel today, he continually provides. Do you ever wonder why Israel is one of the most prosperous nations in terms of technology and advancements and uh, you ever looked at how many Nobel Prizes have been won by Israelis versus all the rest of the world? As young of a nation as Israel is and how influential they are in the world and things like agriculture and technology. If you have a cell phone or a laptop, odds are you have that because of Israeli technology. It's unreal. And we watch how God blesses. Now, does that mean that Israel is walking in the, the, the will of God? Not in the least. As a matter of fact, today's Israel is a secular nation. But God's prophecy said he would restore Israel before Messiah returns. And that's exactly what he did. And he says he'll never take the land away again. And I believe that's what he's going to do is he's going to never take the land away again. But we realize that even though they're not necessarily walking with the Lord as they're supposed to as a whole, 
the Lord still provides. And they may not recognize where those provisions are coming from because most of them are atheists or at the very least secular and have very little connection to, to the religious life of Judaism. Uh, the reality is, is that the Lord still provides and he still cares for and he still takes care of. Why? Because there is chosen people and his promises are upon them. And so just like the first generation complaining against the Lord and, and God wanting to reveal himself in a divine, miraculous way for the second generation through Moses, uh, we see that with our own lives. We see that with the nation of Israel today. And as we look at Moses' reaction, how many of us have a similar reaction when somebody crosses us? When somebody does something that hurts us and we just, every ounce of us just wants to beat the snot out of them, right? Someone's big enough to do it. We actually have to hold back that anger. Uh, but but we get riled up. We get angry, and we we don't necessarily turn to what the, we know the Lord wants us to do, right? Moses, the Lord says, "Speak to the rock," right? This is the same person who was afraid that his speech impediment was going to keep him from being able to speak to the nation of Israel and to Pharaoh, right? And yet here the Lord says, "Speak to the rock." Notice how often the Lord just wants to speak through us. And he says, just speak to the rock and the waters will come forth. And it's really uh, a powerful image here that God still covered his high. If, if I was God, I'd have left him out to dry. <laughs> I'd have done some other miraculous work to provide water. I'd have left Moses out to dry. Look, dude, I gave you, you didn't do it. That's on you. You saw what happened with Korah. You saw what happened with the, the ten spies. You saw what happened with the golden calf. And you still chose not to do what I said. It's on you, dude. <laughs> We'll catch up later. This is on you. I'll, you're on your own. I'll provide water, uh, but not that way. Uh, but God does it anyways. He provides water miraculously for the nation of Israel. Uh, and yet still Israel complains. We don't get through this Parsha before Israel grumbles against the Lord again, right? We have the, the snake, the, the serpent, uh, golden serpent on the, the rod that Moses lifts up because of the plague of the serpents, uh, poisonous serpents. Uh, biting Israel because they grumbled and rebelled against the Lord. So so often we see this, and yet the Lord still provides and cares and, and nurtures them. Uh, and, and the thing that I think is so powerful about this is this image of the water from the rock. Right? The sages tell us in, uh, in Jewish tradition, the sages say that this rock followed Israel. Remember, it was at Mount Sinai that Moses was first told to strike the rock, right? Uh, and water came forth miraculously. And the sages say that this rock from Sinai literally followed Israel around the wilderness, continually providing water for the nation of Israel. Uh, and then Miriam dies and the water stops and there's some weirdness connected in tradition to what that means that I'm not going to go into because it's just weird. Uh, but aside from that, the water stops for whatever reason it is, the water stops uh, from, from this rock. And so the, Israel grumbles again and the Lord says, speak to the rock, Moses strikes it, water comes out anyways. Uh, but as we look at this, we recognize that the, the waters of life is such a unique and, and overarching concept throughout the scriptures, right? Waters of life, living waters, over and over and over. It may even mean something here at the center of God. Uh, but it, it's such a unique uh, concept that flows over and over and over again through the scriptures. And, and yet as we look at this, we recognize that there was this divine, uh, miraculous provision of these waters. So if it was such a divine, miraculous provision, and, and it happened not once but twice, then there must be something that God is trying to show us here. Just like with the Parah the red heifer, there's something God's trying to show us. He's trying to reveal to us here. And the reality of what he's trying to reveal to us is that these waters of life come through Messiah. As a matter of fact, tradition says, just as much as it says the rock followed Israel through the wilderness providing the waters, you know what tradition says that rock was? Mashiach. 
says it was Mashiach. Now, the, the traditional Jewish world doesn't, uh, at this point at least, yet believe that Yeshua is Messiah. So they wouldn't necessarily say it was Yeshua, but they do say it was Mashiach. It was Messiah. And the reality is, is they're actually right. It was Messiah. It was, in fact, Messiah providing miraculous water. We go to 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. This is Paul's words here. He says, For I do not want you to be ignorant, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. They all were immersed into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Messiah. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, for they were struck down in the desert. We go to uh, John chapter 4, one of my favorite uh, uh, passages from the book of John. John chapter 4, Yeshua is, uh, is dealing with a lot of stuff going on. He passes through Samaria, he comes to, uh, to a town called Shechem. Anybody remember the name Shechem? Shechem is where the, the sons of Joseph, the sons of Jacob, slaughtered the men of Shechem uh, in, in defense of Dinah. Um, by the way, Shechem is still a problem area. It's funny, those generational curses. Shechem is still a problem area for Israel today. Uh, it's a problem area for Israel then. It's still a problem area for Israel today. Shechem is where Mount Gerizim, uh, which is uh, uh, called uh, Harachar, the Mountain of Blessings. Remember Mount Gerizim, the six of the tribes would stand on and proclaim the blessings. And Mount uh, Ebal, they would proclaim the curses. Mount Gerizim is in Shechem, or right there on the border of Shechem. Mount uh, Shechem today is Nabalus. It's a Palestinian-controlled area, uh, and it is a continual pro problem for Israel. On Mount Gerizim, on Har Racha, the Samaritans, what's left of them, still live uh, on Mount Gerizim. They believe that Mount Gerizim is where all the events that the scriptures say happened in Sinai. They believe Mount Gerizim is where all of this occurred. And so they live and worship on Mount Gerizim. They still have a temple and still do sacrifices, and it's really weird. They still have a high priest. We sat down and met with them and chatted with them for a while, and he's even weirder than their sacrificial system. Um, it's just weird, but they're still there. The same people are there, and the Samaritans are actually at least part Jewish. They, they were a blending of, of Israel and a few other people together, and, and you get the Samaritans, and they've got some really awkward beliefs, and they reside on Mount Gerizim for the most part. And so in the first century, they were kind of considered as outcasts. They weren't really considered part of Israel because they didn't follow the beliefs of Israel in terms of Mount Sinai and, uh, and the Temple Mount and so on. Uh, and they had some really weird customs and practices. They were kind of considered uh, almost leprous. They just keep over there. You guys stay on your side and we'll stay on our side of the line. But here Yeshua goes through Samaria in, uh, in, in the north, in uh, uh, the, the north part of Israel. It says, but he needed to pass through Samaria, so he came... Uh, he comes to a Samaritan town called Shechem. This is verse 5 of John chapter 4. Near the plot of land that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. So Yeshua, exhausted from his journey, was sitting by the well. It was midday. And a Samaritan woman comes to draw water. Give me a drink, Yeshua tells her. For his disciples had gone away to the town to buy food. Then the Samaritan woman tells him, How is it that you, a Jew, asks me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? For Jewish people, don't deal with the Samaritans. Yeshua replied to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is uh, who it is who is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Earlier he says, Give me a drink. Now he says, Living water. Verse 11, Sir, the woman tells him, You don't have a bucket, and the well is deep. Then from where do you get the living water? 
Uh, then, uh, verse 12, you're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? And he gave us this well. He drank out of it himself with his sons and his cattle. Verse 13, Yeshua replied to her, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give, uh, him shall never be thirsty. The water that I give uh, will become a fountain of water within him, springing up to eternal life. And again, as we said before, as Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians, the reality is that Yeshua is the rock in the wilderness. Yeshua is the rock through whom the Maikai, the living waters, come forth. The waters of life that will never run dry. And albeit when Miriam died, the waters appeared to run dry. The truth is, is they never did. They were still available. They were still there. As a matter of fact, if Israel had simply, instead of grumbling to Moses and Aaron and saying, what the crap did you bring us out here to die for? If they had turned to the Lord and just said, Lord, would you give us some water? The Lord would have freely allowed water to pour out of there. As a matter of fact, it's interesting that the command for the part of Mah was that the water that the ashes was to be mixed with had to be living water, Mayim Chaim. I wouldn't be surprised in the least if the water that was used for the first part of Mah that Moses uh, offered in, in this week's Parsha, for that first part of Mah, I wouldn't be surprised if it was actually water that came from that very rock, the living waters that ran freely from there. I wouldn't be surprised in the least. And then to look at that image of Paradama, the red heifer pointing us to Yeshua, the image of Messiah in it, and that it was Messiah himself that provided the miraculous living waters that made the, the unclean clean, and the reality that Yeshua hung on the stake and they pierced his side and blood and water came out of us because of that sacrifice that you and I are able to be made clean, both blood and water together, you and I are able to be washed clean. And the atoning work of Messiah. And we are able to now enter into his presence. And how often it is that with these stories sitting right next to each other. Chapter 19 and chapter 20 of Numbers. How often it is that we are just like Israel. That we see these divine works of God in our lives. We see the waters part before us. We see miraculous thing after miraculous thing occur. We see the Lord's provision in our lives day in and day out. And yet somehow one thing goes wrong. Odds are because of us. And our immediate reaction is to blame it on God. Our immediate reaction is go, dude, Lord, where are you now? Where are you now? What are you doing for me? Why have you walked away from me? And the Lord's saying, I've been here the whole time. All you have to do is speak. I'm here. I've already taken care of the problem. Notice in Isaiah 53, it says, by his stripes we are healed. It doesn't say what we're healed from. It doesn't say when we're going to get sick that we need that healing. He just says we're healed. The healing is already provided. The water was already provided. All Israel had to do was turn to the Lord and say, give us the water. And that was it. But Israel's immediate reaction was to grumble in spite of everything they saw. Knowing the ability and the power of God. Everything they saw, their immediate instinctual reaction was to complain against God. By the way, <laughs> we Jewish people are still really good at complaining. Kind of what we do. Uh, but that's it's our immediate instinctual reaction as human beings to complain when things are not going how we think they should. Instead of going, okay, God, what are you trying to show us here? What are you trying to teach us? Instead of turning to God and saying, all right, God, would you help me with this? Would you take care of this? I know you already provided the means to get out of this scenario. Would you take care of it? Instead, we grumble, we complain, we blame God for our own decisions, for our own choices. Then we recognize or we lose out on recognizing the power and the beauty 
of the mind high in the living waters that never run dry. Water is an image of provision. You recognize this, right? Yes. In order for vegetation to grow, there must be water. In order for you and I to live, we're uh, predominantly made up of water. In order for us to be alive, we have to drink water. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I've been on this uh, weight loss journey for, for a while now, for about six or eight months. Uh, I, you know, I lost a bunch of weight a few years back and kept it off and then got hurt last year in that accident and, uh, and put a lot of weight on rather rapidly uh, from from a lot of immobility. And uh, so I've been trying since last summer to lose uh, lose weight. And it's interesting how uh, you, you kind of, if you're going to weigh yourself, you have to do it. I don't ever thought about this before. You have to do it first thing in the morning, right after you wake up, after you've been fasting all night, uh, and preferably without clothes on, or at least as little clothes as you're comfortable with. You have to weigh yourself. Uh, that's the prime time to do it. That's when there's the most accurate weight. If you do it at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, at 8 o'clock in the evening, do you know that a gallon of water weighs 8 pounds? Yes. And you drink that, right? I hope you do. I do. I drink 2 or 3 gallons of water a day on average. Not to mention the 2 or 3 gallons of coffee I drink on average. Um, it's an exaggeration, but it's not far. Uh, the, the reality is, is that water weighs a ton. Right? We're made up of water, and then we drink water, and it adds. And so you can't just step onto the scale at any point in the day and think it's going to give you an accurate number. Or else, if you're in this weight loss journey, you're going to get really upset because you're not losing weight. You're just looking at it at the wrong time of day. I can look at my clothes. I can step on the scale in the morning, and the scale is going to say 233 or 232 pounds, whatever it is. I can step on it in the afternoon, and it's going to say 238 pounds. I'm like, what in the world is And then I think about, well, you know what? This vest didn't close on me a year ago. Like, it, it wouldn't come close to closing. Now it's too big. My coat that I was wearing uh, two weeks ago, the sport coat I was wearing when I bought it, was the first time in my adult life I've ever fit in a 48 regular. I've been in a 50, 52, 54 most of my adult life, usually a 52 or 54. Uh, I, I got that 48 when I first lost all this weight last year, and I went, oh, sweet, this closes. This is awesome. I've never had a jacket this small before. Well, now it's too big. And, and it's crazy when we see how this works, but the reality is, is that water that we depend on so much, that water is provision from the Lord. The fact that I can put my cup under the thing on the refrigerator and get a cup of water, that's provision from the Lord. Sure, a bunch of smart dudes in engineering put that thing together and designed it, made it that's provision from the Lord. The plumbing that runs, uh, that brings that water to my house, that's provision. The fact that my body needs that water to live on and that the Lord provides it, that's divine provision. I don't care where it comes from. That is divine provision. Water over and over again is an image of the Lord's provision for our lives. And the fact that Messiah says, if you just come to me, I'll give you the waters of life that will never run dry. And yet often, instead of just going to him to get that provision, we crumble because we're missing out on the provision. We crumble because we don't see it. We complain because it's just not fixed right away. But how much sooner would it be dealt with? How much sooner would it be fixed? How much better would our lives be if we recognize where those waters of life come from in the first place? How much less complaining would we be? When you get thirsty, you start to complain, oh, I'm thirsty, I need to find some water, right? And we drink that water, we quench that thirst, and we're no longer complaining about it. How much easier would our lives be if when we get even mildly thirsty, we just turn to the Lord for that water and drink it? What's even more interesting is science says that if you feel even remotely thirsty, you're already dehydrated. Which just goes to show us that we need that water from the Lord nonstop, no matter what. 
We can't go hours. We can't go days. We can't go months without that waters of life from the from aside. We have to have it every waking second. We need to have you see me carrying my water bottle around all the time. We need to have that water bottle just constantly going nonstop with water into our systems. The waters of life that never run dry. That cup will never empty. The Lord's provision is there, not just in salvation, not just in covering your bills, not just in putting a roof over your head. The Lord's provision is there in every aspect of your life. And all he wants to do is for you, all he wants is for you to turn to him and speak. Turn to him and speak. Not to beat it to death. Not to strike the rock, just to speak. Because he wants to show his miraculous and divine hand to you. Just as he wanted to show it to Israel. In closing, you know, in Revelations, uh, Revelation, only one Revelation. Why we put the S in there? Uh, in Revelation 21, this idea of water of life comes up again, right? In verse 1, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I also heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is among men, and he shall tabernacle among them. They shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them and be their God. He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Nor shall there be mourning or crying or pain any longer. For the former things have passed away. How many are ready for those things to pass away? And the one, speaking of Yeshua, Seated upon the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Then he said, Write for, your, uh, write for these words are trustworthy and true. You see this image of Yeshua and this whole uh, uh, way this all plays out and everything that's going on. And, and he continues on uh, in verse 6. Then he said to me, It is done. I am Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will freely give from the spring of the water of life. Go forward to chapter 22, uh, verse 17. It says, the Ruach, and, uh, the Ruach and the Bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes freely to take the water of life. I testify to everyone who hears the words of this prophecy in this book. If anyone adds them, God shall add to him the plague, uh, the plagues that are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words uh, of this book and the prophecy, God shall take away his share in the tree of life in the holy city, which are written in this book. And Yeshua says, come, come to me. I am the waters of life. The very end of the story. The very end of everything that we know as we are ushered into eternity begins with come to the waters of life. Just like the very beginning of eternity itself for us, which was the blood atonement of Messiah, began with him saying, come to me and I'll provide water. If you ask me, I will give you waters of life that will never run dry. The Lord placed our synagogue here and he gave us the name for this congregation. And he said, in this area, everybody knows how to get to the water, whether it's the bay, the gulf, the rivers, the creeks. Everybody knows how to get to the water. People live on it, work on it, play on it. Everybody knows where the water is. He's placed us here to be a light showing people how to get to the waters of life that will never run dry. Amen. And that's what you and I are for, is to be a light, to lead people to the waters of life that will never run dry. How are people going to see the waters of life if all they see is us complaining? rather than being thankful 
If all they see is us upset rather than simply turning to the Lord. How can we ask others and encourage others to faithfully turn their lives to the Lord and trust in Him always? If we don't, the very people who already experience the living waters, the waters of life, the waters flowing from this miraculous rock that is Messiah. If we don't fully trust in Him for everything, how can we expect others to see that in us and want it for their lives? How can we tell other people that they need to do it as well? How many want to continually drink in that water of life? It is there, it's freely pouring you to experience and worship this morning. Then you need to fall on your faces now and we'll play again. We'll start the whole thing over again if we need to. The waters of life are flowing. And the Lord's provision is there. You are healed by his stripes. It's not a when, it's not an if, it's not a what. You are healed by his stripes. All we have to do is speak. Not strike, not grumble, not complain, just speak. The Lord's provision is there. His water is freely given, and he does love you, cherishes you, and wants you to experience his blessing and provision, and most importantly, his salvation. Abraham, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, we thank you for your word and for the way that your word is living and ever uh, uh, revealing in our lives. Father, these words that have been written thousands of years ago are still today in the 21st century speaking new reality into our lives. Father, not new reality to you, but new to us as you constantly are changing us and molding us in your image and likeness as we were originally created, Lord, and removing the sin and the despair and, and, and the, the, the uh, pain and aggression in our lives as you remove the, the, the curses and the things that we put ourselves into, the situations of problems of life that we place upon ourselves, Lord, that you are constantly molding us more and more into your image and likeness. Father, I thank you that you love us and cherish us, that you have called us.